Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I'm Seth Haynes. And I'm Tish Oxenreiter. Tish, tell me, what is it that you're drinking today? Well, in honor of the fact that we are driving to Oregon this weekend, I am drinking Hum Kombucha. I think I've told you about this brand. Hum is from Bend, where we used to live, but you can buy it anywhere because it's at Target, and that includes Georgetown, Texas. So I got one, and I'm drinking it now. Strawberry lemonade, which is not my favorite because it's a little bit Swedish, not not Scandinavian, sweet-ish. It's it's a little too sweet for my taste. I just heard it out loud. but I still really like hum. So that's what I'm drinking. Oh, well, that's that sounds great. Does it have yeah. healthful properties? Is that why I'm you're drinking sh- it? Or is it just because it's tasty? Uh, mostly tasty, secondary, healthful properties. You know, I just like kombucha because it gives me that like pretend soda vibe. Yeah, the pretend yeah. soda vibe is a strong one. I, you know, I had a, another, I feel like every time I get on this the show with you, I have these like, Soda confessionals. I had another <laughs> soda yesterday. How'd you feel after? Um, well, I was driving, as you know, I was on vacation. And so I was driving back solo 10 hours and I drank, um, what did I drink? It was a diet drink. I think it was Pepsi products. Um, and I, I honestly don't know if I felt worse, be, you know, because I drank the soda or because I ate a Freddy's lettuce wrap. <laughs> right. So I'm not really sure. It's six of one, half dozen of another. But that, I don't know, man. I mean, I know yeah. this is a drink with a friend, not an eat with a friend. But have you ever had a Freddy's lettuce wrap? Mm-mm. Truly amazing. Best really? food in the world, hands down. I will have to remember that because I drive by them without giving them a second thought. So, all right. I'm telling you, if you're ever in the mood for a burger uh, without the bun, yep. uh, Freddy's will do it for okay. you and they'll do it right and it's super good <laughs> good to know yeah i yeah uh we're about to go on an epic long road trip so that might come in handy there you go just keep All that right. in mind so what are you drinking this afternoon well i i have uh, gone back to the well um it's kind of my go-to well lately i don't know why i like this water so much but i'm drinking essentia the overachieving h2o <laughs> um and i feel the need to overachieve particularly because uh, over the last week or two, I have underachieved on my mm. hydration yeah. while I was at the beach. Um, and it's really weird too, because you know, you swim in the ocean and you get so thirsty. Yep. But then I just found myself not drinking very much. Um, so today I'm back. I'm going back to the gym. And so I'm going to overachieve and drink my overachieving H2O. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Good. Glad so, to uh, be part of that. Tell me. Today, what are we talking about? What's on your mind? Well, so last week we chatted about play. And to me, we're talking about the flip side of that same coin, which is rest. And the reason I call it the same coin is because really, to me, this all, um, the idea of both play and rest work really only when they're in tandem with each other. And I'll, I'll get into the side of work in just a minute. But I mentioned last time this idea of leisure, and I've mentioned on this uh, show several times the book Leisure, the Basis of Culture by Joseph Pieper, the book I emailed or mailed you guys a while back. And I keep coming back to this because to me, this just in- encapsulates everything I think about when it comes to real rest. And so that to me is is what I want to unpack with you today. What does it mean to be really at rest? 
Uh, Pieper makes this argument that leisure is the basis of culture, which sounds crazy to us, but that's because we have a messed up view of leisure in our modern world. Leisure comes from the Greek word skola, which is where we also get our word school, but most of us would not associate leisure with the modern equivalent of school. And that's because the definition of leisure is not laying around and Mm. scrolling through Netflix. It is an active engagement in recreation, meaning like renewing who we are Mm. and renewing the world around us. So that to me is the rest I've been thinking about a lot. So, um, and we're about to go on a break. So to me, I just can't wait to do more actual physical resting because that's on my to-do list in the next few weeks. How about you? What, what are your initial thoughts on rest? Well, you know, I just I just came off the beach uh, where I did rest a lot. And, you know, the last time that I pursued rest um, with Amber, actually, it was not that, that long ago. We had took a couple nights away and it was right after the pandemic. And um, it was just this really nice, you know, just time away, just the two of us. And during that time away, I actually worked on a novel, the novel that I've, you know, been writing now for 10 years. Um, and I was going through my last round of edits and I got really excited about it. And I plowed in and did about an hour's worth of edits and edits. And she said, do you, do you ever stop? Do you ever rest? And it struck me in that moment that I felt deeply at rest and deeply at peace. And it, mm-hmm. it felt like it was work to a certain extent, I guess, but you know, it, it's not like I've got a publishing contract on this novel. It's not like it's income generating by any sense of the word. But when I get into it, it just feel, I just feel at peace. It just feels like sort of an active recovery. It's that phrase that we use in CrossFit, which we've talked about CrossFit before, active recovery. You know, it's mm-hmm. you work three days really hard and then maybe you come in on a Thursday and it's just really light work. You're not working hard. You're not taxing your muscles. You're not, you know, doing, t- you're just actively going about sort of moving your body. And that's kind of how I feel when I work on short stories, novels, poems. It, it really does feel like rest. And the whole world tells me it's not rest. Everybody right. tells you that's not rest. Like if you're doing any sort of work at all, that's not rest. But that's kind of why I like your de- definition and would love to hear you talk about that more. Because for me, like these sorts of, of active recovery really do more for me than like sitting on a beach and looking at the waves or whatever. Although I did some of that too, sat on the beach. I was say, novel. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. But I also spent some time working on a new short story. Yeah. Um, probably about two or three hours. And that, that was just as rejuvenating to me as sitting down and reading a novel. Well, the concept of scola as well, um, along with having an active engagement in recreation, there's a sort of, um, it's all about the posture. It's this idea of an inward calm. And what I heard really that summarized the posture that we're supposed to have, or, or the posture that scola allows us to have is letting things happen over being busy. So Mm. it's not about being busy. It's not about forcing ourselves to work on a to-do list. It's just letting things happen. And I think that's what you mean when you talk about you're just wanting to write. It's not about wanting to not do anything. It's about wanting to just let things happen. And so there's an enjoyment in just sort of like, you know, I'm going to pick up the pen and, and see what happens a little bit and not force it. Um, And I also think, like I said earlier, that real rest works best in tandem with the concept of the dignity of work, which I would love to unpack maybe when we get back from our 
our break, the idea of the real dignity of work and that we're made to work and that we're not made to escape work. And a lot of us treat our downtime as the escape from work. And really, yeah. it's it's not that. Uh, so we can get into that some other time. But to me, that's that's why perhaps it felt genuinely restful for you to write a short story because it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, what you just said is really good, like the concept of letting things happen. And I think if I, um, yeah, this is really interesting to me. So I'm thinking this through in a, from a writer's perspective. As a writer, you know, there are different kinds of books. There are books that you set down and you sort of map out and plot out and um, particularly in my nonfiction, what I'll do a lot of times, whether I'm working for myself or a client is I'll actually have a pretty firm plot line, you know, rubric, uh, whatever, you know, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. And writing to that sort of almost outline does feel like work. It's still enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I still like it, but it yeah. feels like work. But when I sit down and I work on a poem or when I work on a piece of fiction and I just kind of let the character speak to me or I let the wind speaks to me if it's a poem or um, if I'm writing a song and I'm just like playing guitar and letting what happens happens, that is the kind of work, air quotes, that feels like rest. Mm-hmm. It's just letting what happens happens. And I've never thought about that until just now. So yeah. thank you. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. I mean, to me, I'm still really wrestling with that idea too, because I'm naturally a, I don't, it's not the term workaholic. I I'm just naturally a worker. I enjoy working. I enjoy, I mean, I enjoy both the work I do to help bring in income for the family, but I even enjoy things like, I mean, I don't love the work of putting dishes in the dishwasher, but I enjoy the work of keeping a home and keeping our family functioning. So it, it is life-giving to me to hear that that's what rest is also. It's coming from an inward posture so much more than what it looks like on the outside. Yeah. You have read this as well, the book Rest by Alex yes. Sujung Kim Peng. Yeah. I don't know if you remember the part where he talks about uh, Eisenhower and yeah. that Eisenhower, unbeknownst to most people, had this little cabin in the UK when he was the general of, of the United States military over there and really and truly the... Uh, architect of operation, whatever that was called, <laughs> um, you know, beat the Nazis. He uh, operation beat the Nazis. That's that, what we're calling it on the show from here on out. <laughs> right. Um, he had a little cabin in the woods, apparently that almost nobody knew about on purpose. I think the only person that really truly knew was like an assistant of his and he was told not to bother him unless he needed to. And he actively recovered out there, even in the midst of World War II, which could, you know, the location he was at could be bombed literally at any moment. Yeah. But he would go and he had a dog out there and he would just do things like crossword puzzles and read books that had nothing to do with military strategy for the sake of not losing his mind. And so my thought is like, if if we're not trying to literally defeat Nazis in our day-to-day work, then we're not too good to stop what we're doing. And, and find some recovery that we need. Yeah. But this is kind of the rub, right? I mean, people who are listening to the the podcast probably for the most part, don't, you know, write for themselves. They can't just let the muse speak and generate words every day. You know, you can't, uh, you're, you're probably, most of us probably aren't the boss of ourselves 
quote unquote. You know, I mean, there are demands on our lives that are generated by other people, by generated yeah. by our kids, maybe uh, generated by an actual boss at work um, or even by a career field. You know, I mean, I think about the legal field. I'm a lawyer and I think about the legal field and it's constantly churning the billable hour. I mean, it's, you know, even if you don't have a boss, the billable hour feels like your boss and, and the tyranny of that billable hour telling you that every hour of rest equals an hour of no dollars, you know, um, or a boss telling you every, you know, hour of rest equals an hour that you didn't X off 10 things off of your to-do list. And I think we gen genuinely and generally live in a time of unending tasks. Uh, I was talking to my mom not too long ago. And she was saying, you know, I think your generation works harder than our generation ever did, despite all the pushback. Um, she said, I think, you know, you guys, the millennials, the Gen Zers, um, you know, you get a bad rap for, you know, feeling entitled or not working hard enough or whatever. And she's like, no, man, you guys work all the time. She said, there's never been a Christmas when you and your sister have been here sitting down um, in the family room and have not gotten up and excused yourself to respond to a work email. Mm. That's work. Um, and so I think a lot of us have forgotten how to rest because of the tyranny of the billable hour or the tyranny of the to-do list or the tyranny of an economy that literally stops for half a day on Christmas and a half a day on Thanksgiving. Right. Um, and maybe if you're a little bit hungover on New Year's Day, but otherwise turn, 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 man. Um, and, and I think it's a, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's kind of created dysfunction in our society. Oh yeah. It for sure has, because we have this, I mean, if we're going to get philosophical, I mean, we do on the show and, you know, this is all about the sacramentality of life, seeing things as they really are. I think the reason is because we've forgotten what the point of life is. You know, we've forgotten what we are here for and what we are here for is not necessarily to be productive. You know, we are made to work, but perhaps work does not equal the same thing as as productivity because productivity has so much to do with the work itself, the output and not the soul of the worker. In fact, yeah. I just learned this. This is I learned this literally today. So, um, you know, we have a St. Joseph is uh, one of his titles is St. Joseph, the worker, because he was a carpenter. Right. Yep. And his feast day is May 1st. He's got another feast day that has to do with another title of his in March. And this one, May 1st was only added in the mid 1950s. And it was added specifically as a counterpart to May Day, which hmm. a lot of countries recognize. And in particular, countries that were communist were recognizing May Day, and they were making these huge May Day celebrations in order to celebrate the idea of work. And but what I guess the church saw was that they were emphasizing the work and not the worker themselves. And so the church basically established, well, I'll see your May Day and we'll add St. Joseph the worker mm -hmm. to remind us that there is dignity in who we are as co-creators and not mm -hmm. necessarily because of the billable hours we can give our clients. Yeah. And so to me, that's where it gets hard to justify this idea of rest until we get our to-do list done as though we have to earn rest as though, you know, we can't stop on 
Sabbath and actually take a day off until we've checked the list off, which we all know never happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to me, it gets really deep. <laughs> yeah. And I like the idea of uh, seeing Joseph as co-creator um, because when you start running it through the co-creator rubric, it brings to mind the creator who did obviously work days one through six um, <laughs> and on day seven uh, rested. And okay. and if we are truly co-creators, then are we better than the creator who rested? The answer to that is obviously yeah. no. And as you said, if if someone who is running Operation, um, what do we call it? Operation Defeat, Defeat the, Nazis. the Nazis. Yeah. If if <laughs> if Operation Defeat the Nazis can rest, then so can we. But moreover, if the person who created the entire universe can rest. Right. Mayhaps we can also. <laughs> right, right. And to kind of add on to the concept of Sabbath, because I think that's probably more important than taking a big long break for most of us, because as you say, a lot of us have bosses and and bills we need to pay. So we can't just decide to only work when we feel like it. We have to show up. Um that we have a Sabbath built into our rhythm of time. You know, it's a gift to us. God's outside of time. You know, Sabbath is not for God at all. It is for us. We purposely are created for whatever reason to stop one out of every seven days, you know, I mean, roughly, in order to just rest. And back to Peeper in Leisure, the Basis of Culture, he talks about how leisure really is a form also of celebration or that leisure leads to celebration and that we see this a lot in modern cultures. You know, we have festivals for all sorts of things, small towns and, and large, huge events. And, um, and those hint at this idea of a, of the divine celebration we're made for, which is the mass and that we are, we rest truly when we recognize a Sabbath, when we recognize our need to worship something besides ourselves. And that's when things like the recreative part of leisure really comes into play. Because what you're doing when you're working on a short story as a form of rest is you're co-creating, you know, and you're remembering who the who the original creator is, the creator of us all. Um, and so that's why rest is not. In fact, another quote, I keep quoting this book, um, I think is so great. No, 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 sorry. It's the quote um, from the other book, Rest. He quotes a guy named John Lubbock, and he says really succinctly, leisure is one of the grandest blessings and idleness one of the grandest curses. And I think that's why, you know, because leisure is a form of co-creating leisure. I mean, idleness is a form of escaping that. Yeah. So, what I'm thinking about, what I'm hearing, uh, what you're talking about um, with respect to rest, I immediately, and I don't know why this happened. I don't know why I thought about this. Uh, but the first thing I thought about was uh, cultures that I've seen growing up that mm -hmm. have rested well. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't really know this, but my family is from Louisiana. And you were talking about um, celebrations of rest. And the first thing I thought about was, festival season in Louisiana. Have you ever spent time at a Louisiana festival? No, I haven't. I've barely been to Louisiana, even though it's right next to us. You know what? As a traveler and someone who loves culture, you need I to know. put on your calendar uh -huh. the Bro Bridge Crawfish Festival. Crawfish festival. Okay. Um, and you guys need to go next year. Just take the day, go write about it, take pictures of it, enjoy it, experience it. It's amazing. 
Okay. Um, but when I think about uh, cultures that rest well, like that's what I think about. I remember growing up, you know, we would go down to Louisiana to see my grandparents and whether it was to visit a festival like the crawfish festival or whether it was to, you know, just be with my grandparents. I mean, there was always a time and my grandfather was a very, very hard worker and owned his own business. But there was a time every day where he just kind of shut everything down and everything was oriented around the family dinner table. Um, And there was no work done from the time that he plated, you know, dinner on the table. Um, And he was still very much, you know, in business at the time, very much still, you know, making calls, um, you know, from his own house, from his home office, whatever. Um, But there was just a time when it just stopped. And, and everything was devoted to the family. Everything was devoted to sitting on the back porch and looking out over the bayou. Everything was devoted to, you know, taking the day off to go to a festival. Um, and it was a culture that was just a lot slower. Now, I realized part of that, it was a different time, right? So I was growing up in a different time. We didn't have email. There weren't, you know, a thousand ways to get in touch with any given person about business. But that culture was just a culture of, rest. When you weren't working hard, um, you rested. And when the evening came, you rested. Um, And, you know, there there was almost a feeling of, um, you know, it was kind of that feeling that you get in, in, in Italy, you know, when everybody shuts down for a couple hours in the afternoon because of whatever reason. I mean, that's kind of how it felt there is like, we are making time uh, to rest and recover because we know tomorrow's coming. And when tomorrow comes, it's got a lot of troubles to take care Mm -hmm. of. And so for tonight, we're going to shut it down, feast, party, have a good time, enjoy each other's company, um, and recharge. Let what happens happen. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not still work to be done. My grandfather was a huge cook. He loved to cook. He would always cook uh, crawfish linguine, right? It was like, it was the big meal that would happen when we would come home. And it, it, took a lot of work and effort, but there was always wine and there was always gin and there was always conversation and there was always good food. And, and even while we were working, we were still laughing and enjoying each other and letting what happens happens and enjoying leisure time together. Um, and it was a beautiful culture balancing both rest and work. Mm. And, you know, you say that we live in a different culture and so perhaps this isn't possible anymore. But I would add to that, that because we live in such a different culture, we need to fight for that very thing so much more than our grandparents had to and make it an intentional, obvious, proactive thing in our lives, which is perhaps the takeaway for all of us in this conversation today that, you know, we hear these stories from our grandparents and it's, it's all well and good to say like, well, that's lovely. It doesn't work now. No, I say, let's do what we can to fight for it. I was reading this bit about, um, about the types of rest we all need. Um, like this one scientist was talking about that we actually need seven types of rest, but that one of them has to do with the sensory rest and that this we're just overloaded with all our sensory input and output that we have to do stuff to purposely unplug and and almost like go back to another era as best we can. So to me, I mean, it it might sound ludite or it might sound old fashioned or curmudgeonly or, you know, old man shakes fist at cloud. But I think 
part of our rest has to be putting our screens down, deleting some apps from social media and doing that very thing your grandfather did. And, uh, you know, there's studies that show nature legitimately does stuff to our brains to make us more rested. Um, it's called uh, soft focus uh, because our brains, it's being out in nature, we're allowed to focus just enough for it to be restorative. Like we don't want our brains to unplug because then we die. But when we <laughs> let them <laughs> run just enough, that's what we can do in nature. And so I think a takeaway for this, for those of us listening, you know, if if it's a summer break for you as well, see what you can do, even if you are still going to work the next day to let go of the screen a little bit more, to get out in nature a little bit more, to make sure you set aside Sabbath and perhaps, you know, add in that festival, that concept of a festival in your life, even if it's a small podunk little thing, or maybe it's a backyard barbecue or something. But um, these are all ways we can find rest in small little, you know, nooks and crannies without having to take an epically long road trip. Yeah. And consider also working in some sort of a creative effort. Um, you know, it, it may, it may feel like, uh, work to you. And if it does, don't do it. But if there's a type of creativity that gives you that sense of unplugging, that sense of rest, the sense of like letting it come to you, whether that's painting or writing or writing a song or a -hmm. poem or sculpting something out of clay, who knows, maybe it is, uh, creating, um, you know, gr- designs in your lawn with your lawnmower, whatever that thing is, enjoy it and and try to use that as an active form of recovery and rest. Yeah, we hinted at that last week, right? When we talked about play, like having a playful posture to the different things you have to do anyway, that's a great way to do it. I mean, the obvious chore that comes to my mind is cooking. You know, if we need to feed our families, do it creatively, some some form that doesn't stress you out. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. That makes me laugh because my grandfather, who was known for being a ducks in a row, loved, you know, he drew outlines of his tools and his workshop so that they would on the wall so that they would be hung back in the right place at the right angle and all that. Um, his neighbor across the street would purposely uh, haphazardly mow his lawn just in circles and make patterns and designs and spell words just to drive my grandfather crazy. Because he knew he was like looking through the blinds and shaking his head. <laughs> he did that on purpose. So, um, you know, I love if you have. Guy. Yeah, Whoever I do too. I well, him. he be- he became a, uh, what do you call that when it's an uncle, but not really your uncle? He he became a, f- a family member in spirit. Um, a Funkle Bill. A Funkle, yeah. A, yeah. Uh, yeah, Uncle Bill. He did that. Anyway. So, um, yeah, to me, the takeaway as we head into our break, which we are going to take a break from the show for just a few weeks is, uh, you know, I speak to you, me and all of us like, let's just find ways to rest, man. We don't always need to be producing. We don't need to point to some form of output in order to deserve rest. We just rest because that's how we're made. We're made to need rest. Agreed. And I'm looking forward to our break because on our break, you know what I'm going to do on Wednesdays when we record this stuff? I'm going to rest. Good for you. Good for you. That's, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to not even knowing when Wednesday is. So yeah, that's, I, that's my goal. Yeah. I'm looking forward to being back though also. So me it's too. A, it's a double-edged sword. Exactly. We're doing I'll miss this. everyone. I'll miss you. I'll miss the listeners. It's going to be, it's going to be kind of sad, but I won't think about it uh, too much while I'm resting. You know, it'll be even better when we come back because of that. That's, That's what, what I've I heard. Found. Absence yep. makes the heart grow fonder. That's right. So, Tish, tell yes. me, what is one thing that you are listening to, uh, reading, watching, 
um, or eating. We haven't done eating <laughs> yet. We still have, I keep saying that every now and then, but we still yeah. haven't done it. That is uh, making your life a little bit uh, more good, true, or beautiful. All right. This might be a first in accidentally naming something I've already named because I can't remember if I've told you about this book, but if it if I have, then, oh, well, I'll just count it as something I'm mentioning again. Have I told you about this book called This Is Where You Belong? No. Okay, good. All right. I must have talked to somebody else about it somewhere else. Okay. So this is a book I found at the library. It just sounded up my alley and I'm really loving it. It's called This Is Where You Belong, The Art and Science of Loving the Place You Live. It's by a woman named Melody Warnick. And she just goes through the different you know, sociological reasons we're supposed to all love where we live. And she gets into the practical, like boots on the ground, wh- how to make this work. So for example, the the second chapter is this idea of uh, walkability, being able to walk everywhere. You know, I, I personally live in a super walkable part of town, but she gets into the reality that most people don't. Most people live in the suburbs or, you know, a street without sidewalks. And so she gets into what does that look like to make it walkable for you? And so each of these chapters, you know, say hi to your neighbors, commune with nature, eat local food. Um, It's just really, it gets into the science of it and also the practicality, the application of it. So I think you and Amber would both really like it. It's super easy to read. So I'm going to bring it with me on our road trip so that I am even more happy to come back to Georgetown whenever we return because I do like where we belong. So that sounds like the book that was written with you in mind is the target market. I know. I, I've said that several times. I was like, I think I was your little avatar for your book proposal. You know, yep. when you describe your target reader, I think that's me. Yeah. She just wrote Tish Oxenwriter and the publisher was like, oh yeah, I get it. Okay. We'll yeah. roll with that. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So what are you reading, watching, or listening to that is adding more beauty to your life? Are you familiar with the show Manifest? No. Never even um, heard of it. Not, not to be confused with the uh, TBN show Mana-Fest um, <laughs> with some weird prophet <laughs> who says weird stuff about Israel and whatever. Okay. Not that show. Got it. Manifest, M-A-N-I-F-E-S-T. Uh-huh. And um, it, it's a show. I think it was an NBC show, but I found it on Netflix I love it. I watched the first episode last night. Huh. And here's what I love about it. Okay. You know, first of all, it's it's kind of got that sort of sci-fi law fringe kind of feel to it. Perfect. Yeah. It kind of has some of that same sort of alternate universe time travel-y kind of stuff going on there. Um, but the thing that I really love about it is, you know, it's a show that explores a particular miracle, which I will not tell you about, a particular occurrence, which is named a miracle in the first episode. It explores that and does a really good job, but it also is pulling in themes of uh, Christian belief and it's doing it in a way that doesn't feel gross. It doesn't Mm. feel necessarily like it's affirming it, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like it's mocking it either. And, and I feel like we live in an age that, you know, and it's not just Christianity. I feel like we live in an age where uh, representations of religiosity of any sort on television can be skewed as negative. And I feel like this does a really good job of just saying, like, even though this may not be my bag, I'm not going to portray it as a negative representation, at least not off the bat. It didn't in the first episode. So it was really interesting. There was like an actual like Romans 828 was quoted several times. It's wow. really bizarre. Huh. Um, and, and it felt actually like a really good piece of writing because as I was thinking about the ways that they used 
the scriptures and the way they used belief, it's like the way people would actually use it. Mm. Like it didn't feel like cheesy or heavy handed or awkward or dismissive. It's like, oh no, I know that woman. I know the woman who just said that. She's in my real life. So I think that there was a piece of the writing there that felt very approachable and real that I really liked also. So I highly recommend at least the first episode. (laughs) It was really good. Cool. Would you say teens would like it? Like family? Okay. Yes. Yeah. I I think, I mean, of course I've only seen one episode, so I don't know how it gets, but it's, I think it's uh, the rating on it is TV 14, I think. So yeah, I think teens could watch it. And it's got kind of has that angsty young adult drama built into it. So yeah, yeah. that's good. I I assumed if it was by NBC at first that that probably meant at least had some of that, you know, covering of network television. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's one of those shows that feels very, you know, if it's not an NBC show, if it's an actually Netflix show, I don't know, but it feels very network television. Okay. Well, that's great to know. Yeah. I was just looking it up. I think it was on there on NBC for a few seasons and then got picked up by Netflix. So yeah, it's, I like it a lot. Well, good to know. Well, on that note, I guess we will maybe watch it on our summer break because it is time to wrap this up. You can find this episode as well as all previous episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com. If you like what we're bringing to your week, you can help keep this podcast alive and active by picking up the next round of drinks. The show is free for you to listen to, but it's not free for us to make. So at the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint, you can actually play a big part of the show. So find the link for how to do this in the show notes of this episode or at adrinkwithafriend.com and thank you in advance. Another final reminder, we're taking a short midsummer break from this podcast in order to do exactly what this episode and the previous one were all about, but we'll be back with you in a few weeks, hopefully much more rested and reinvigorated with new thoughts for you about seeing life through a sacramental lens. We've also, I'm going to just tease this out, we've got a fun announcement that we can hopefully share with you when we get back. So let's just say, um, be on the lookout for that. That's all I'm going to say about that. It's something pretty cool. All right. You can find me and all my work, especially my newsletter and books at tishoxenrider.com. Seth, where can people find you? SethHaines.com. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenrider and Caroline Tassell is our transcriber and assistant extraordinaire. I'm Tish Oxenrider with Seth Haynes, and we will be back here with you in a few weeks. Thanks for listening.